One thing that we're doing is we're teaching through the book of Acts. And what we truly believe about the teaching is that we believe teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and book by book is the best way to understand and know God's revelation. Because God's revelation is found only in the scripture right here that we see here. His special revelation given through Christ, his son. And so what we see here, what we have been seeing, excuse me, in the book of Acts has been God's revelation of the Holy Spirit's work in one of the most profound, greatest movements ever in the history of our time on earth. And that's the movement of God planting his church amongst all peoples. And so the reason why we chose Acts was sort of a, um, a coalition of, of prayer, of effort of prayer between a lot of us in leadership and, and others who have been sensing God's leadership towards learning and studying more about what we need to do uh, as a church together as far as uh, pouring into one another, using our gifts, um, really understanding what we need to do as far as keeping the essentials of the local church the main priority. And understand where we can have wiggle room and where we can be free to let the Spirit, obviously, move and work. And so, in Acts chapter 9, last week we covered verses 1 through 19. And in the book of Acts, this is more of a, a pivotal point in the book of Acts in a sense that the church's mission is moved from the Jews to now the Gentiles, but there needs to be sort of a bridging before that can ever happen. And Stephen provided that, Stephen, the, uh, Stephen one of the chosen seven in, in Acts chapter seven, uh, through his speech and uh, preaching and also through his death, uh, we saw how he bridged the gap from the Jews to the Gentiles. And then we saw how Philip took the gospel because of the persecution mentioned in Acts 8.1 took the gospel to the Samaritans. So the church moving from Jerusalem out to the the rest of the surrounding region. And then we saw how Philip had moved then the, to the, the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit to the Ethiopian eunuch even further south from Jerusalem. So all that being said is we now, last week we went to uh, learning more about what the conversion of Saul really was and what that meant for us in our lives today. And we saw how the true conversion of Saul did not happen on his own efforts, just like you and I when we were saved. It didn't happen by us choosing God. Understand that. You did not choose God. You did not choose God or Christ. You didn't. There was nothing in you. The Bible is very specific in Romans 3 about that. For there's no one who does good, not even one. There's no one who chooses God. No one. Nobody. I mean, that's how hard, if you're a Christian, your heart was and my heart was. So in Acts or in Acts chapter 9, yes, the conversion of Saul did not happen because Saul wanted to be saved. Because he wanted to know Jesus. He was persecuting Jesus. Meaning he was persecuting his followers, wanted to destroy the faith because of tradition, because of his own understanding, because of his own self-righteousness. He wanted to destroy the Christian faith through destroying Christians physically, harming them, putting them in jail and having them executed. 
But we saw in Acts chapter 9 the divine Lord and Savior Jesus Christ appearing to him on the road to Damascus. We pray for today uh, Israel in a sense of all the things that they're experiencing as a nation. But, you know, the troubles that Israel has been experiencing are, are nothing new to them. They just have this long, long, long history of conflict in that region because of the long history they've had through their Judaic traditions, their law, and also just their history with other nations there. But all that being said, the road to Damascus, the city of Damascus, was an ancient city even before Saul even encountered it. And it's still mentioned in the news because this past week they were experiencing some shelling, meaning they were getting attacked in that city right there, in Damascus. So Damascus is nothing new. It's always been there by God's providence, by God's sovereignty. And this city is a city that would be used during this time for the preparation of Saul's ministry in the future. And so Saul gets up on the road to Damascus and he's blind and he goes to Damascus for the instructions. And a man named Ananias, another disciple, puts his hands on Saul after finally obeying the Lord's command and goes to the persecutor of persecutors and says, Brother brother Saul, God has sent me to you. The confirming words of, I know that you are now a Christian, a true follower, because God has revealed himself to you. And so because of that, we come to this part in Acts chapter 9 where Saul, uh, he is experiencing an internal, what we call an internal conflict in the soul of what am I to do with this revelation that I've just received? How am I to follow Jesus? What am I actually supposed to do with the words and commands that God is giving me? And so we saw how in the first part of Acts chapter 9 that Ananias was sent to basically disciple Saul. Ananias was basically sent to say to Saul, I'm here to help you understand the Christian faith, help you walk in fellowship with Jesus, and help you understand what your calling will be for the next few years, and even after that. And so we come to Acts chapter 9, and what we're seeing here is the effects of Saul's true conversion. Now, if you're uh, wondering what, what he means by conversion, what I mean is Saul's true understanding of the gospel, how he truly came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, how his heart was transformed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And so I want to try to give you a definition of what conversion is. So many people have their own definition. I think looking through the Bible, you'll see that conversion is this. Conversion is the changes brought about, including a change of heart. So the heart is no longer a heart of stone. It's a heart of flesh. In other words, not physically a heart of stone, but literally through their disposition in other words, you're no longer against God, you're for God, in a sense. You want to be, at least. Including a change of heart from being dead in sin to being alive in Christ. A change in status, so you're no longer guilty, but you're not guilty. Before God. 
It's just a change in relationship from being an outcast and enemy to now being a friend and at the table with the Father. And it begins the journey of discipleship through which a person who was once a slave of sin is now freed by the Holy Spirit for holiness. In Ephesians 2.10, it says very pointedly, very clearly that you were prepared for those good works which God prepared beforehand. Now, many times, the reason why we do expositional preaching verse by verse is we want to know what's called the truths of God before we can understand what the imperatives, the commands of God are, the commands of God are. And the reason we don't want to confuse that is because if you get too wrapped up in what the commands of God are, in other words, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do this, you should be more about this. If you get so wrapped in the imperatives, you almost flip the indicatives, the truths on their head, and then you become more in tune with how you can attain God's righteousness through what you do instead of what God's already done. Now, both things are important. Both things are extremely important that you know why you've been saved and you know how you should respond. Both things are important, but they have an order. And the order is God did and so we obey. Not I obey and therefore I'm accepted because of what I've done. we, We must keep those two things in order because that's the order and logic of the Bible is that God does and we respond. That's it. That's our disposition, what it needs to be as a Christian. And so, like I said, both things are important that we know the truth of God, but also that we know how we are to respond to that and apply that to our lives daily. And I think that's important here. So we see how evangelism is the declaration, the preaching of the person, work, and message of Jesus. You say, you, I'm not a preacher. You are a preacher. We, this is a what I would say a, a part of the collective body and a service. Yes, this is the preaching teaching, but we're all called to preach the gospel. And all of the actual imperatives and commands that Paul gives in the epistles and most of the New Testament, he says, you do this, you do this. But those yous, when you look in the Greek, they're all plural. You all do that. Now, why would Paul say that? It's because he knows that you can't do it on your own. You're called to evangelize collectively together. You're called to live in holiness together. You're called to do those things that you ought to do to please Christ, to please God together. Because God cares about two things. One, you're saved for salvation. And the second thing is you're saved for community. And you can't divorce the two. And so discipleship is the process of helping others understand this message so evangelize when you're evangelizing when you're doing evangelism it's the declaration of the person work of jesus the perfect work of jesus but when you're doing discipleship you're actually helping others understand that through life on life through community and so all this should be to church planting so as we look here at at chapter 9 let's look at the verses beginning in verse 20 It says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So he's still there. Saul is still in Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in a synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this man who made havoc 
a confusion or just a bagunza in Jerusalem of all those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? So the people who saw Saul before he became a Christian are confused. This is not the same guy, is it? Is it? Maybe not. And then it says in, in, in verse 21 still, And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So we, I already gave you a definition of conversion of what that looks like in the individual's heart. Now we're wanting to know what does true conversion result in? And the first thing as we see is right here, very plainly, is that those who are truly Christians will speak of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Now, as we prayed today as well for the Iranian pastor, it is very easy for us to back down on this truth. What I mean by back down, by just shy away, become ashamed of it. But it's the central truth of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. When Jesus asked Peter, he said, who do people think that I am? And Peter said, well, some say Moses, some say Elijah. And Jesus said, who do you think I am? And Peter said, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response was, blessed are you, Peter, Simon of Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but God himself. Now, the idea is that we connect the two things together, is that Jesus was asking his own disciple, Peter, who do people think that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're correct, because no one else is going to get it in the future except those whom I reveal myself to. And that's the idea, is that Saul received the revelation from Jesus himself that I am the Christ, the living God, that you're persecuting. And now Saul is doing what? He's in the synagogues, in Damascus, immediately saying, he is the Son of God. It's what I was saying before, I was foolish. It, Jesus is the Son of God. And he's still confounding the Jews. Why? Because they can't understand how a message so simple like Jesus is the Son of God can transform the persecutor of persecutors. The person who is so religious, so self-justifying in his faith can now say Jesus is the Son of God. And claim this message as truth and that would transform his heart. They're so confused and also by, as it says, confounded. Meaning he had the oratory, the uh, verbal ability to convince others of this truth. They were starting to realize that Saul's true conversion was truly real. That he was actually gaining followers and starting to become a threat. Well, the idea here that we need to see is that in those days when Saul was in Damascus, it says about three years he spent there, Damascus and Arabia, because of Saul's first encounter with the, Jesus Christ as the Son of God in this revelation, he needed to spend some time in Arabian desert so as to really process what's going on. I don't know about you, but if a light shone so bright that blinded me for three days... And I neither ate nor drank. 
I assure you that you would spend probably a good many days processing it, really trying to figure out what was really going on, what was happening. I mean, that's a supernatural event. Just like your conversion, if you are a true believer in Jesus, was a supernatural event. Some people say, oh, supernatural events don't really happen. I would say, if you're a Christian, you're born again. That's a supernatural event. Because only the supernatural work of God can save any one of you. But as we're seeing here in the scriptures in 22, the Jews are just so confounded. Who lived in Damascus that Saul was proving that Jesus was the son of God. It would be the equivalent of a Muslim saying that Jesus is the son of God all of a sudden. Like, isn't this the person who fasted, who who obeyed the five pillars of Islam, who, who really was dedicated to his faith, is now proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God? Isn't that blasphemy? We're confused. It's the same equivalent because God can change the heart of any individual. God can. And we need to take that and apply that because many times we are discouraged. We sometimes go to despair when we pour so much of our heart and life and prayers into an individual and they still will not repent and confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And we need to truly believe that God can and will save that individual. That the Holy Spirit's power is sufficient to save someone like Saul as well as the person who's just as hard around us. We need to pray that God would save individuals like the Prime Minister of Iran. We need to pray that God would save individuals and turn the hearts of men towards Him. In Proverbs it says that the King's heart is a stream in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way He wills. So if God can do that, then we need to pray that God can do that. We need to pray like that. Our prayers need to be rich in the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. That the same God who raised Jesus from the grave has the power to save individuals like you and me whose hearts are very hard. So as we see here, the, uh, Saul spent a good many days in Damascus learning, processing his faith, really learning what it means to be a disciple, how to preach, how to teach. But Saul was still immature in his faith. I mean, just imagine if you're... If you're, if you're a Christian of maybe two, three years, you have to imagine yourself as a two or three-year-old baby or toddler. Still learning, still adapting, still making lots of mistakes. But as you grow in Christ, you don't make those mistakes as much anymore. But Saul wasn't, as we know with Paul, he, Saul wasn't perfect from the very beginning. He still had the same kind of, uh, of, of tendencies to make mistakes just like all of us. And so we need to remember that. So it says here in verse 23, continuing on, it says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Which Jews are these? These are the same Jews in Damascus, in the Hellenist, Hellenistic, uh, from the Hellenistic ethnic group. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So before Saul actually returns to Damascus, he goes to Arabia to spend a good many days there just to fast, pray, think about what's going on. 
probably had been rejected many times by good friends, probably had already experienced a lot of opposition already. Maybe it wasn't to the extent of physical torture, but it was still opposition. And so now what we see is he goes back to Damascus and tries, but the opposition has grown so much that they view Saul as a threat in verse 22 that he's actually knowing that uh, I'm going to get killed if I don't get out of here. So what happens? His disciples. So he's already been making disciples. Are you making disciples? Are you making other disciples? That's the evidence of a true believer. If you're a true believer in Christ, you're making disciples. Somebody said this once that everyone needs a Paul and a Timothy. Somebody older and somebody younger. Somebody who's pouring into you and somebody that you can pour into. But I think it's everybody needs a Paul a Timothy and a Silas. Somebody needs, everybody needs somebody who can mentor you and shepherd you. But you also need somebody that you can do the same thing to, but also have somebody walk alongside you that can help you in ministry and life. And it's important to have all three aspects because we all need to be making disciples, helping each other grow in Christ. So we see an evidence that Saul is already making disciples. He has followers. And they let him down through an opening in the wall. In Damascus, in cities, uh, cities were traditionally built, you would have to have the walls to protect everybody and everything inside the city so as to prevent outsiders from entering or causing havoc, war, all those things that would threaten the livelihood and economy of the city, especially like Damascus. But This individual, probably who let Saul out through the window, was probably a believer that we can suppose. But the main thing that you need to know is that when Paul says, actually his name changed to Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, 30-33, Paul talks about his weaknesses. He talks about those things that made him strong in Jesus. And Paul, uh, before he really came to know his suffering... And his persecutions. He was a pretty proud guy. I mean, we should look at, actually, in Galatians. It talks about here in Galatians 1, verse 12. For I did not receive uh, the gospel from any man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus. For you heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism uh, how I... I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And so Paul, uh, he was a special guy, very talented, very educated, had all the criteria, just the profile of the perfect missionary to go to the Gentiles. But with that comes what? Pride. He's still a sinner. And so when Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 11, 30-33. He really viewed his letting down in a basket sign of kind of like a low kind of thing. Just felt really humbled by that act right there. Because in, in Acts 9, let's we'll go back to Acts 9. His disciples took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, if you're Paul or you're Saul and you're being lowered in a basket, you're probably thinking... You know, only about three years ago, I had nice clothes. I was eating at great restaurants. I was 
shopping at the best shoppings in, you know, wherever, in Jerusalem. And uh, in Jerusalem, I could park at any estacionamiento I wanted to, and I wouldn't get a ticket, you know, for not having a star parking on my car or, or anything. People would look up to me. But now, I'm running from people, I'm being hunted down, I'm in a basket that you put food in, and I'm being lowered down a wall right now. That's my life right now. <laughs> That's got to be humbling in a sense, because you're not running around like the king of kings anymore. You realize that you have a greater authority than you now, and you're no longer somebody special in your own eyes. You're a slave of Christ. You're a child of God. And you're in a basket being lowered down. That should humble every single one of us. That it doesn't matter what situation in life you're in. All of us are called to certain tasks. In God's mission. Because this is ultimately God's mission that we're called to. But all of us are called to certain tasks that we're called to do. And some of them aren't the most glamorous. In other words, they're not the greatest that we would, that others would view. But every single task that God calls us to is important. And when we're faithful in doing that, there's tremendous blessing. Not only as a disciple of Jesus, but so that we also make disciples. So you want to think about what kind of impact that had on his disciples. And that he was no longer persecuting disciples of Jesus but he was showing disciples of Jesus how you're supposed to obey God even in the most gruesome circumstances. And we're seeing here Saul, he is being tested. And he is not only making disciples, but he's attracting opposition based on what's happening. So what happens? Saul goes from Damascus and he tries to go to Jerusalem. Look at verse 26. It says, And when he had come to Jerusalem... He attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So let's stop right here. So his conversion is being tested inside and outside the church. Inside. Let's look at this right here. When he had come to Jerusalem, he had tried to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. You have to put yourselves in the disciples' shoes. You have to think, is this guy going to take me to prison or what's going to happen right now? But I don't believe. I haven't seen what's going on. I haven't seen a transformation and he's trying to join the group. He's trying to join all the Christians. If you were to live in a uh, close nation that was close to the gospel... You would probably have the same thoughts today versus other versus other new converts. You would be thinking, is this person truly a Christian? Have, have they really confessed that Jesus is the Son of God? It's truly important that we know whether individuals have confessed Jesus Christ as the Son of God before admitting them into the local fellowship. It's something we call this. It's something practical. We call it a... a uh, Closed front door and a closed back door. Now what I mean by a closed front door, what I mean by a closed front door is that we make sure that individuals who enter into the Christian body, that they're truly understanding the, the implications 
as a disciple of Jesus, that they know what the implications are as a community, that they know what it means to follow Jesus so that when they enter into the body, they're true believers. Now, what I mean by the back door closed is that we make it difficult for people to exit. We make it difficult for them to just walk out. You know those situations. You know what I'm talking about. We're in Brazil, and I've been in the United States. It's the same thing. Fofoca is just common. But it's the idea that we let people just walk out and go their way because we just say, well, they want to leave, they can leave. The back door closed means we don't let them leave. We make it difficult. We pursue them. We don't let them just walk out. Even if sin is committed, we still don't let them leave. We make sure that reconciliation and grace are a part of what happens. Now, there are cases when an individual needs to be what's called excommunicated, but I don't like using that term because really what we're saying is they're never going to be allowed back in. What I mean is that there are times when the Bible does speak about putting the person out so that they understand the importance of repenting and reconciling back into the fold. That we're continually calling them back into fellowship. So what I mean by the front door closed and the back door closed is we make it not difficult for people to enter, but we make it them understand the true implications of being a follower of Jesus and being a part of the community of faith. And we make sure that they understand if they leave that they are denying the confession they made and they're denying the community that they once were a part of or a part of. Why are those things important? Because Jesus cares about his bride, the church. And God didn't give us hegras or rules so that we could be legalistic, but so that we could showcase God's grace. God gave us not rules, but he gave us parameters and means for us to preserve unity in the body. And opportunities that we can show God's grace more and more. Just like this case. Now, when you look at the scripture here, verse 27, this is key. Saul tried to join, but what happened? They were afraid. They had reservations. But, but, it's always a good thing when it says but in the Bible. Because it says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So there's an individual who speaks for Saul. Barnabas does. Where else did we see Barnabas? Do you remember in Acts 4 at the very end, Barnabas is mentioned, son of encouragement. He gives out of his wealth to the church. So now we're seeing Barnabas in another fashion characteristic of his life is that he's speaking up for those who needs being speaking up for. He's speaking for Saul in this case. He's saying, no, 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 this is a true believer. He's legit. He's legitimately a believer in Jesus. And he's wanting to follow God. So true conversion of his, it's being tested inside the church. It's okay. People say, don't judge or you'll be judged. The verse is just out of context, out of whack. It's being applied incorrectly. It's okay to judge. Because what is judge also means test, approve, to, to, to do discern, and those things are important. What God's not what God is saying is we are not to declare someone 
a Christian or not, whether they're going to hell or not. We can discern by fruit, of course, but ultimately we don't determine that. Only God does by His Spirit. So let's look at 28 because we're seeing Saul tested within the church. He's finally brought into the fold. So he becomes a member. But 28, so he went out in and among it at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So there we go. We see in the name of the Lord, Jesus. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But those are Greek speaking Jews. And, but they were seeking to kill him. So there we go again. He was in Damascus and he was running for his life. Now he's in Jerusalem. By the way, in Jerusalem, that's where persecution started. So it's kind of like, am I going to go back? But that's what you do when you follow the Lord's leadership, the Holy Spirit. You wait on the Lord and you allow the Holy Spirit to lead you and you go and you obey. You do ask questions and it's okay to do that. Ananias did it twice and the Lord had to respond, just go. But the fact of the matter is, here in the text, we see Saul being persecuted again. And it says in verse 30, this is important because this is our confirmation that the brothers in Jerusalem confirmed his salvation. And when the brothers learned, so now they are in fellowship together with Saul. They learned this, they brought him down into Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, which is Saul's hometown, Sicilia. So what we're seeing is that the true conversion of Saul it's resulted in not a persecution from within, but a testing from within. He's being tested. As a true member of the church, he becomes that. And outside, he receives testing as well. He receives another challenge, persecution. But the brothers understand what's going on. Now, as I said, he's young in his faith. So he's probably making some more enemies than friends by being more bold than he should be. Because... Looking at the time frame of Saul's life, he spends around seven to eight years over near Tarsus in that region. And we don't hear about him actually until the end of chapter 11 because Barnabas goes and gets him. Now, what do you think he's doing for seven to eight years? Probably doing some more training. Probably receiving from the Lord more revelation of, you know, I really love it to speak in my name. But there's some opportunities where I don't want you to speak that way or talk that way. And that should give us indication about how we share the gospel. We need to be winsome. And there will be times when we will experience persecution. Uh, Let me say that again. The scriptures are very clear that all those who are followers of Jesus will experience persecution. Can't be more clear than that. And so, um, you know, when I, I talk a lot of times on the phone with some of my friends and ministry partners in the United States, and they tell me what's going on and how the uh, United States is changing so rapidly, so quickly the last five years. And, you know, I, I sympathize because I'm an American. I understand that I did live there, I grew up there. But, however, I think, you know, you're a Christian. That's going to happen. And, like I said, I'm not trying to be unsympathetic, but. People who follow Jesus, they're going to they're gonna experience persecution to an extent. And beyond that, understand that your rights are going to be taken away. Because the world ultimately hates Jesus Christ. They hate the gospel. And so we need to not necessarily keep that in our minds so that we become hard towards other people. 
or will be hard towards the fact that we need to still stand up for Christ in certain avenues, especially the public arena. You know the interesting fact about the why Louis Giglio was uh, taken off the list to just pray? It's very interesting because what we're seeing, at least in the United States and we're seeing around the world, is that Christians are no longer welcome in the public square. And when we say public square, we mean the opportunity to engage culture. You claim Jesus Christ as Son of God, you're no longer welcome in the public square. But beyond that, you say that there's absolute truth. You're no longer welcome in the public square to actually dialogue, to have a conversation. And that's becoming sad. And we need to pray for more opportunities to do that. But we need to remember, just like Saul was experiencing, people are going to hate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's very important that we pray for others who are experiencing that more directly. And we pray that, we need to pray more that when that happens to us, we're ready. Because our family and many families that I know are very burdened for our nation and other nations that uh, where we serve in open societies, meaning open societies where you can freely share Jesus, where Christians are not prepared to suffer for the gospel. And we need to be ready to do that because at any moment God could allow our privileges to openly share the gospel to be taken away just like that. And we need to be ready. We need to not know structure, but we need to plan to plant churches that can be ready for those things when they happen. I didn't say if, I said when, because it will happen. And so let's keep that in mind. You know, right here it says in, in 31, it's interesting, is that the, the church experiences such a boom, a multiplication. In 31 it says, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I saw five things. I saw... The church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. It was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it multiplied. And it transformed this hater and opposer of God into a lover of Christ. And so look at these things right here. We see how the church experienced just a tremendous... uh, Experience of peace, growth, godliness, encouragement, and strength. So the church had peace, was being built up, it was walking the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the last word, multiplied. They didn't add, they didn't divide, subtract, they multiplied. There was exponential growth. So let's say you two disciple. Two people. At the end of this year, you all four. And then at the end of the year, next year, you, you four disciples, one each again. You have eight after two years. And then the eight disciple, one each. the end of the third year, you have what? Sixteen. And then after the fourth year, you have? Thirty-two. And then after the fifth year, you have? Sixty-four. And then after that? Exactly, 128. So you get the idea. That after six years, you have that many people walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, being built up, having peace, 
and then still multiplying, making disciples. And that's what people do when their hearts have been changed by the gospel. Is that their heart no longer is opposed to God, but has been changed by God's spirit and has become soft and chooses the things of God and has these characteristics right here. of 31. And that's what really evidences whether or not we've truly become a follower of Jesus. And so I think there's some ways that we can apply this message and I hope that you all will be able to apply it as the Holy Spirit leads. But these ways, I think, from these truths, based on the conversion of Saul and how we know true conversion to be and happen in our lives, that we need to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and understand this truth on a daily basis? Are you thanking Jesus, God, for sending His one and only Son, who was and is God, to die on the cross for our sins? Are you making new disciples uh, through the pure proclamation of the gospel? Are you making disciples? You know, Matthew 28 is very pointy clear that you go. And as you're going is really what's translated. As you're going, you make disciples. You don't make converts. You don't. You don't make converts. You make disciples. That's to transform the way you share the gospel. But as well... Are you submitting yourselves to constant testing within the body and outside the body? So what I mean by that is, are you constantly growing in your faith? Do you have accountability? Are you truly growing and being held accountable to how you're sharing your faith, to making disciples? And are you not purposefully, in other words, you really are pursuing opposition, but because of the message of the gospel, is it actually attracting people who oppose Are you being firm? Because that will be the true test of whether or not you're preaching the pure gospel of Jesus. If people are actually, I don't agree with that. I think that's naive and ignorant. If you hear those kinds of words on a constant basis, in other words, on a at least once a week or maybe once a month at least, you know, you are probably preaching the pure gospel because people don't want to hear the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And we need to stop opposing God like Saul did in some areas and be lovers of Christ in all areas. We need to do that. We need to remember that we're called to daily search our hearts, daily allow the Holy Spirit to reveal those thoughts, those intentions, all of those things that Psalm 51 says that we need to have God create a clean heart in our lives on a daily basis so that we become more conformed to His purposes, His plans, and His truth. That God's Word is becomes more relevant and powerful in our lives in that way. That we understand how we do that. And so let's truly do that. Let's, let's do that right now. Let's apply this to our own lives and hearts. Let's, let's just stop right now and reflect on the truths of God. How God changed Uh, Someone who is so opposed to the gospel, to someone who really will uh, declare the gospel, who declared it and made it known and did the difficult and hard thing. So I want you to think about two things. One is, are you still opposing God? If you're not a Christian here, I'm not ignorant to think that every single person is a believer in here. If you're truly not a Christian, flee to Christ. Flee to God. 
Flee to Jesus as God's son. Confess your sins to him. And you know, all you have to say is, God, I confess that I'm a sinner. That I'm in need of a savior. And that savior is Jesus, your son. Repent. Turn to him. Turn to God. Ask God to change your heart. Because the only one who can do that is Christ himself. Do that. If you're a believer and you say, you know, there might be areas I'm opposed to God. Ask God to change your heart in that way so that you become a different individual who's more transformed in the likeness of Christ in that way. The second thing, the second aspect is, are you making disciples of Jesus Christ? Are you making disciples? And what I mean by that is, are you sharing the gospel with non-believers and helping them grow to an understanding of Christ? And are you helping those who are believers grow in their understanding of the gospel? So right now, think about those things right now. Think about whether or not you're opposed to God as a believer or unbeliever. And whether or not, if you're a Christian, if you're a true follower of Christ, are you making disciples?